Hey there, what's up, man? Let's see, um, we just covered Clarence Thomas on um, Modest Titch. Uh, desperate denials, loser candidates. MAGA gets uncovered with Diaper Don's worst defense yet, and GOP candidate. Distasteful something. First, that scene news will be unsealed today. Judge confirms. First Epstein names. What does that mean? First Epstein names. Uh, Bill Clinton. Archaeologists discovered the tomb of ancient alien Gilgamesh in Iraq. When was this? Who is Nimrod? Is Nimrod Gilgamesh? Nimrod's bio begins in the 23rd century BC with King Sargon of Akkad's and his grandson Naram Sin. YouTube, let's check it out. The government is robbing you, and honestly, you're dumb if you haven't caught on. You caught on. Ruth's bio begins in the 23rd century BCE with King Sargon of Akkad and his grandson Naram Sin. Following the great flood, which destroys all of humanity except the family of Noah, Genesis 10 represents a family tree in the form of a branch or segmented genealogy, tracing the 70 female descendants of Noah's three sons, Jepheth, Ham, and Shem. Many of the names of these descendants are names of nations, tribes, lands, and cities known to us from elsewhere in the Bible and from extra-biblical sources, Yavon, Madai, Ashkenaz, Kush, Mizraim, Canaan, and so forth. Accordingly, scholars refer to this chapter as the Table of Nations. Generally speaking, the descendants of Japheth mostly represent nation and lands that are situated northeast, north, and northwest of the land of Israel. The descendants of the Ham represent nations that are situated in its south, while the descendants of Shem are mostly situated to the east of the land of Israel, making the land of Israel into the center of the world. The geographical and ethnic focus of the list is accentuated in the closing verse of each section and the chapter ends with Genesis 10, ratio 32. These are the groupings of Noah's descendants according to their origins by their nations and from these the nations branch out over the earth after the flood. The picture that emerges uniquely in the ancient world is all of humanity as a single extended family, many scholars would assign its score to the priestly source of the Pentateuch due to its language and literary style and the function it serves in the primeval narrative. Nimrod the Hunter, a digression from the nation's list. The table of nations has two digressions that appear to be supplements. One is brief, which the NJPS translation puts in parentheses and outlines the borders of Canaan. The other is much more extensive, comprised of five verses about Nimrod, beginning with Genesis 10 ratio 8. And Kash begat Nimrod, he began to be a mighty man on earth. A ratio number of 8. Phrases in the passage <laughs> are difficult to interpret. Gibor, the noun, would mean anything from giant to hero to mighty man or warrior to champion to man of power or to potentate. Bares, this could be translated on earth giving Nimrod's might universal significance, or in the land, in the sense of his country making him a local hero. Beginning to be mighty verse 8 tells us that Nimrod, the word, means began, 
but he began to be mighty makes little sense in this context. The NRSV translates, he was the first on earth to become a mighty warrior, suggesting a role for him similar to Jabal, Jubal, and Tubal King, fathers of all herders, musicians, and metal workers, in Genesis 4 ratio 20 to 22, namely the originators of these professions. The idea of his being the founder of some profession works even better with the opening of the next verse which describes him as a mighty hunter, perhaps making him the first hunter. Genesis 10 ratio 9, he was a mighty hunter before Yahweh. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before Yahweh, this Nimrod, the mighty hunter before Yahweh, is never mentioned elsewhere in the Bible. The anecdote then shifts from describing Nimrod as a hunter to a king. Nimrod's kingdom begins in southern Mesopotamia, verse 10 describes Nimrod establishing his kingdom in southern Mesopotamia. Genesis 10, ratio 10. The beginning of his kingdom was Babylon and Erech and Akkad and Kalang in the land of Shinar. The land of Shinar is mentioned seven times in the Bible. In Genesis, the Tower of Babel was built in a valley in the land of Shinar. And Shinar is the home of King Amphrathel. Genesis 14, ratio 1 to 9. The name of Shinar refers to southern Mesopotamia, more or less equivalent to the Mesopotamian Sumer and Akkad, in which almost all the cities listed are found. Babylon is the capital of the empire which would eventually destroy Judah. It is in southern Mesopotamia. Akkad is mentioned in the Bible only here. It refers to the city of Akkad, which was capital of the Sargonic dynasty's empire in the late 24th to early 21st centuries BCE. The ancient Semitic language Akkadian is named after this city. Erek is also mentioned only here, although Erekovates are listed together with the Babylonians, Susanites, and Alamites. In an Aramic letter quoted in Ezra for ratio 9, this likely refers to the well-known city of Uruk, one of the oldest and most prominent of the Sumerian cities, fortified by none other than the legendary Gilgamesh. The location of Kalne is a mystery. A city named Kalne is mentioned in Amos 6 ratio 2. In Isaiah 10 ratio 9, it is spelled Kalna. These texts, however, refer to a place in northern Syria rather than southern Mesopotamia. A tradition preserved in the Babylonian Talmud, Yoma 10a, identifies Kalne with Nofer Ninfe, perhaps referring to Nippur. About halfway between Uruk and Babylon, this would work well here. In 1944, William Foxwell Albright suggested that the empty vocalization should be amended too, and they were all. The verse would then read Babylon and Erech and Akkad, and they were all in the land of Shinar. Many but not all scholars and translators have accepted this attractive amendation. Since there is no agreed identification for Kalne, this proposal may be correct. identification for Kalne, this proposal may be correct. Nimrod goes north, verses 11 to 12, then describe Nimrod moving from the region of Shinar to northern Mesopotamia. Genesis 10, ratio 11. From that land, he built Nineveh and Rehoboth and Kala, 10, ratio 12, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Ashur could refer to the ancient city that served as the original capital of the Assyrian Empire. Nevertheless, this is a city not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible, and it seems more likely that this term is parallel.
to the land of Shinar in the preceding verse and refers to the land of Assyria in general. Nineveh was the last and best known capital of Assyria from about 700 BCE to its destruction in 612. It is mentioned multiple times in the Bible. Rehoboth Ir remains a mystery. The name means something like plazas of the city. There are several places called Rehob or Rehoboth and the like in the Bible, but no such place is known in Assyria. Kala, near today's Mosul in northern Iraq, was the capital of the Neo-Assyrian Empire from the reign of Ashur Nasirpal II until about 706. Resin may be a reference to a city that served as the capital of Assyria for a very brief time. During the reign of Sargon II, who ruled from 722 to 705 and who destroyed Samaria, Sargon II built his own capital called Dur Sarukin, Fortress of Sargon, present-day Khorshabad, near a place called Rezene, modern Rasaland in the same region. The late Victor Abigdor Hulovitz suggested that this was none other than Rezin. It is unclear what the great city refers to. The syntax suggests Rezin, but as Dona 1 ratio 2, 3 ratio 2 to 3, 4 ratio 11 suggest, from the biblical perspective, Nenve capital of the Assyrian Empire at the height of its power was truly the great city. In sum, verses 8 to 12 tell the story of a mighty hunter hero king who began his reign in the ancient great cities of southern Mesopotamia and continued from there to the great cities of Assyria in northern Mesopotamia. The dissonance between the Nimrud passage and its context. The Nimrud passage interrupts the genealogy of Ham, which continues in verse 12. Moreover, the verses seem to diverge from the structure of the larger genealogical list. It focuses on one individual and that cities he founded, not on the sons he beget. Finally, the geographic picture it represents is problematic. As noted, Shinar is in southern Mesopotamia, all in Shematic territory. Kush, however, ostensibly Nimrod's father, like other descendants of Ham, represented the well-known land of Kush, also known as Nubia, the Septuagint's Ethiopia, roughly today's Sudan. How are we to make sense of this? Critical scholarship is almost unanimous in the assessment that verses 8 ratio 12 were taken from a different source than the preceding and following verses. Most scholars would assign verses 1 to 7 and 13 to 32, the priestly school, and verses 8 to 12 to the J source. This suggests that we may explain the Nimrud narrative independently of the surrounding table of nations. This leaves us with two questions. What was its original meaning and why was it linked to the genealogy of Kush? Why is a Kushite in Mesopotamia? Oh, wow. There are three possible explanations for the connection Baal, between Nimrud and Kush. Number one, a in Mesopotamia. Some argue that the Nimrud the hunter figure indeed has a Kushite or Nubian background and they try to make the biblical text fit that interpretation in some way. Number two, artificial connection. It is possible that Nimrud originally had nothing to do with Kush but that the scribe who inserted this J text into P or a letter scribe, added him as a Kush sons to anchor the Nimrud story to the larger context of Bagats. Number three, crossing Kushes. A third option interprets that Kush in verse eight, Nimrud's father, not as Nubia, but as place in Mesopotamia, for instance, in his classic treatment of the subject, Ephraim A, Spicer, 
identified Nimrud's Kush with the Iranian people that we call the Kassites, who ruled Babylonia from the 16th to the 12th centuries BCE. According to this, whoever inserted the J tradition into its present place mistakenly conflated the two. This final option, that is, a Mesopotamian Kush, is embraced by most scholars and is likely correct. Identifying Nimrud, we know of no ancient Mesopotamian figure, mythic or historical, named Nimrud. The scholars have struggled to identify who the biblical authors are describing. The cities that Nimrud founds do not point to any historical period. Some of these cities did not even exist at the same time. Uruk was one of the oldest cities in the world and remained an important place throughout antiquity. Akkad, on the other hand, was founded in the 24th century and destroyed in the 21st century. Kala and Enve only rose to prominence in the 9th century and were destroyed in the late 7th, and Dur-Sarukin was even shorter-lived, thriving only a handful of years in the 8th century. Thus, some scholars have suggested that Nimrud is based on a legendary god, a demigod, such as the Sumerian gods, Ninurta or Nargal, or the Babylonian Marduk, all of whom were renowned as great hunters, which the biblical versions humanized. If you are within 20 years of retirement, or if you're already retired, all Is that of your fucking Ross? Oh, that's Ron Paul. That was Ross Perot. Why? Because... ...whom were renowned as great hunters, which the biblical versions humanized. Others have equated Nimrud with legendary oh, Mesopotamian heroes such as... Oh, that was cute with the kitty cat. Thus, some scholars have suggested that Nimrud is based on a legendary god, a demigod, such as the Sumerian gods, Ninurta or Nargal, or the Babylonian Marduk, all of whom were renowned as great hunters, which the biblical versions humanized. Others have equated Nimrud with legendary Mesopotamian heroes such as Gilgamesh. Spicer, however, correctly notes that despite the epic aspects of the biblical story, there is no textual evidence of Nimrud being anything other than mortal. I suggest that instead of trying to explain all the details of the verses, we consider the larger picture of Mesopotamian ruler that the biblical passage is trying to convey. For this, we need to look oh, back to a very ancient Mesopotamian figure as far back as the 23rd century BCE. The king of Kish, the mid-3rd millennium BCE was a time of great change in Mesopotamia. After several centuries of rivalry between various Sumerian city-states, such as Yur, Uruk, Lagash and Uma, the rulers of the city of Kish managed to establish supremacy for much of southern Mesopotamia. This was the first time of one Sumerian city succeeded in doing this. In successive generations, the little king of Kish would come to mean a divinely authorized ruler over all of Sumer and would be claimed at different times by the rulers of various cities. Use of the title king of Kish implied being victorious at war, a righteous judge, and a builder of cities. Kish, I would argue, is the basis of the Kush of the Nimrud passage, the first Semitic-speaking emperor. Legend has it that Sargon, the man who would become what some would call history's first emperor, was born in the town of Azipiranu on the Euphrates. At birth, Euphrates. his priestess mother hid him in a basket of rushes, which she then set afloat on the river. The basket floated to Kish, Just where like he was Moses. adopted by Aki, the gardener, eventually becoming cupbearer to Urzababa, king of Kish. Somehow, he managed to become the king and expanded his rule over all of southern Mesopotamia, pushing north the conqueror Mari, Abla, Ashur, and Nineveh, and even reaching Anatolia and the Mediterranean. 
At some point, he moved his capital to the previously known city of Akkad, adding the title King of Sumer and Akkad to his previous designation King of Kish. We do not know this person's birth name, but as king he adopted the throne name Sarukin, which in the Eastern Semitic language that came to be known as Akkadian means the true king, indicating that some people doubted his legitimacy. In English, he which in the Eastern Semitic language that came to be known as Akkadian means the true king, indicating that some people doubted his legitimacy. In English, he is known as Sargon, following the conventional biblical spelling. Sargon was the first non-Semitic-speaking Mesopotamian ruler to adapt the Sumerian cuneiform script to his own language and he reigned over a vast territory for 56 years. Nimrud's depiction is based on Sargon. Both Nimrud and Sargon began their reigns in Sumer, Shinar, building Akkad in Babylonian, and continuing north to Assyria. Both were credited with extraordinary prowess. Both were considered to be the first post-Diluvians royal power, thus Sargon is likely to figure behind the group, though as we will see, he has been amalgamated with his grandson, Naram Sin, Naram Sin, Sargon's grandson. Sargon was succeeded by his sons Rimish and Manish Tushu, and then by Manish Tushu's son, Naram Sin. Naram Sin ruled for 36 years. He survived a rebellion led by the city of Kish, and then restored the empire. Naram Sin, besides appointing himself the new deity of the city of Akkad, resurrected the bureaucracy, economy, and defense of the kingdom and was known as a patron of gods. He was also the first to accept the title Saru Kibratim Arbaim, king of the four corners of the earth. Naram Sin was succeeded by his son Shar Kali Shari, and during his reign the empire fell apart. A few additional Akkadian rulers are known but they were no longer powerful emperors, and the city of Akkad was eventually abandoned and lost. By the time the Bible was written, the kingdom of Akkad had been gone for more than a millennium. So how did this amalgamated character of Nimrud enter the Bible, Sargon and Naram Sin? In later historiography, we know very little about the historical Sargon or Naram Sin, but to the Mesopotamian literati of the late Babylonian and Neo-Assyrian periods, the age of Sargon and Sin was one of the important stages in human history. According to the Sumerian king list, after the flood, kingship came down from heaven and was granted to the city of Kish. Over a thousand years after the Akkadian Empire collapsed, the Neo-Assyrian kings used Sargon's royal title of Sarkisati, taking it to mean quite literally king of the universe. Most strikingly, Sargon's Neo-Assyrian namesake, Sargon II, had his full title, the great king, the mighty king, king of the universe, king of Assyria, king of Babylon, king of Sumer and Akkad, inscribed on numerous inscriptions all over his royal palaces. Osiris Ra. In short, to people of the Apollo, second and first millennia BCE, the great Marduk, myths and Orion. legends of the past tales of the flood of Atena, the shepherd, the struggle between Aga of Kish and Gilgamesh of Uruk, and the ascension of Sargon and Naram Sin were important history. The same was true for the Canaanites and the Israelites, living in the second and first millennia BCE at the other end of the Fertile Crescent. Sargon in the Levant. Although our knowledge of the West Semitic versions of the primeval history are extremely limited, it is clear from the few sources we do have that Western and Eastern Semitic traditions shared many common elements. The similarity was due initially to the common origin of all Semitic peoples. 
During later periods, different versions would be occasionally updated through continuous contact between Mesopotamia and the Levant. Hittite versions Levant. of the Sargon and Naram-Sin accounts have been found in Anatolia, increasing Assyrian and Babylonian influence and eventually domination of Syria and Israel Syria. during the 9th through 6th centuries would have influenced the written biblical version of the story. The ancient Hebrews, like their Mesopotamian counterparts, probably had their own version of the bringing down of kingship after the flood. At some early age, stories of the great king Sarukin of Kish, who ruled Shinar and Akkad, and even conquered Assyria and her city, Assyria. reached the as proven by the version found at Al Amarna, Egypt. Apparently, time and distance blended the names and deeds of Sargon and his almost as famous grandson Naram Sin, whose name was corrupted in the biblical account from Naram to Nimrud. The author of the J source may very well have known a longer epic poem which he condensed. Israeli tradition made the hero a mighty hunter before Yahweh, but retained his rule as the original human monarch. A Neo-Assyrian period updating the Hebrew. Did you know that there is a hidden message in the ancient Egyptian symbol, the Eye of Horus? Despite existing over 3,500 years ago, the ancient Egyptians had advanced knowledge of the solar system, mathematics, human anatomy, and even the unseen world of the spiritual. If you take a closer look at the Eye of Horus, Universe, you'll see that it's actually a reference to the pineal gland positive vibe to our brain's anatomy. Dot and com. the reason for this is because this small, pea-sized organ is directly... ...human monarch, a neo-Assyrian period updating, the Hebrew Nimru tradition may have indeed been updated by the addition of cities like Kala and Rezin, ruled by the more recent Sargon, the second Assyrian king to take that name. The Assyrian monarch might have even chose this throne name to use the comparison for propaganda purposes. The Nimru tradition is known by the 8th century Judate prophet Mika, who referred to the land of Nimrud when predicting the future destruction of Assyria. Mik 5 ratio 5 who will shepherd Assyrian's land with swords, the land of Nimrud in its gates. Thus he will deliver us from Assyria, should it invade our land and should it trample our country. No other prophet, however, uses this designation. The loss of Nimrud's story. The compilers of the table of nations included Nimrud as one of the typological 70 descendants of Noah. Later Jewish tradition, nothing. The fact that Shannar appears both in relation to Nimrud and in the Tower of Babel story makes Nimrud the builder of the tower and understands him as the archetypical evil king. His wickedness was to inherit in his very name, derived from the verb to rebel instead of a great hunter before Yahweh. He became the ultimate rebel against God. The biblical Nimrud, however, is neither a wicked king nor even a character unique to Israeli historiography. Instead, he is the composite Hebrew equivalent of the Sargonic dynasties, two most famous kings of Kish, Sargon, the first Semitic emperor, and his grandson, Naram-Sin. The later editors of the book of Genesis dropped much of the story and mistakenly unidentified the Mesopotamian Kish with the Hamitic Kush. The Nimrud tradition was thus lost save for five verses in Genesis 10. If you enjoy this video and want to see more like it, please consider subscribing to us and hitting the like button. The connection between Nimrud and Kush. Number one, a Kushite in Mesopotamia. Some <coughs> argue that the Nimrud the hunter figure indeed has a Kushite or Nubian background and they try to make the biblical text fit 
that interpretation in some way. Number two, artificial connection. It is possible that Nimrud originally had nothing to do with Kush, but that the scribe who inserted this J text into P, or a letter scribe, added him as a Kush sons to anchor the Nimrud story to the larger context of Bagats. Number three, crossing Kushes. A third option interprets that Kush in verse eight Nimrud's father, not as Nubia, but as place in Mesopotamia, for instance, in his classic treatment of the subject, Ephraim A. Spicer identified Nimrud's Kush with the Iranian people that we call the Kashites, who ruled Babylonia from the 16th to the 12th centuries BCE. According to this, whoever inserted the J tradition into its present place mistakenly conflated the two. This final option, that is, a Mesopotamian Kush, is embraced by most scholars and is likely correct. Identifying Nimrud, we know of no ancient Mesopotamian figure, mythic or historical, named Nimrud. The scholars have struggled to identify who the biblical authors are describing. The cities that Nimrud founds do not point to any historical period. Some of these cities did not even exist at the same time. Uruk was one of the oldest cities in the world and remained an important place throughout antiquity. Akkad, on the other hand, was founded in the 24th century and destroyed in the 21st century. Kala and Enve only rose to prominence in the 9th century and were destroyed in the late 7th, and Dur-Sarukin was even shorter-lived, thriving only a handful of years in the 8th century. Thus, some scholars have suggested that Nimrud is based on a legendary god, a demigod, such as the Sumerian gods, Ninurta or Nargal, or the Babylonian Marder, all of whom were renowned as great hunters, which the biblical version humanized. Others have equated Nimrud with legendary Mesopotamian heroes such as Gilgamesh. Spices, however, correctly notes that despite the epic aspects of the biblical story, there is no textual evidence of Nimrud's being anything other than mortal. I suggest that instead of trying to explain all the details of the verses, we consider the larger picture of Mesopotamian ruler that the biblical passage is trying to convey. For this, we need to look back to a very ancient Mesopotamian figure as far back as the 23rd century BCE. The king of Kish, the mid-third millennium BCE was a time of great change in Mesopotamia. After several centuries of rivalry between various Sumerian city-states, such as Yur, Uruk, Lagash, and Uma, the rulers of Holy the city shit, of he's Kish got Menem, like a weird After years several right centuries there. of rivalry like... between various Sumerian city-states, such as Yur, Uruk, Lagash, and Uma, his ears BCE are like dog ears. After several centuries of rivalry between various Sumerian city-states, such as Yur, Uruk, Lagash, and Uma, the rulers of the city of Kish managed to establish supremacy for much of southern Mesopotamia. This ah! was the first time one Sumerian city succeeded in doing this. In successive generations, the little king of Kish would come to mean a divinely authorized ruler over all of Sumer and would be claimed at different times by the rulers of various cities. Use of the title King of Kish implied being victorious at war, a righteous judge, and a builder of cities. Kish, I would argue, is the basis of the Kush of the Nimrud passage, the first Semitic-speaking emperor. Legend has it that Sargon, the man who would become what some would call history's first emperor, was born in the town of Azipiranu on the Euphrates. At birth, his priestess mother hid him in a basket of rushes, which she then set afloat on the river. The basket floated to Kish, where he was adopted by Aki, 
the gardener, eventually becoming cupbearer to Urza Baba, king of Kish. Somehow he managed One simple but brilliant trick to heat your home in 90 seconds and save thousands of dollars on your heating bill this winter. To Urza Baba, king of Kish. Somehow he managed to become the king and expanded his rule over all of southern Mesopotamia. No, he doesn't have a beard. Pushing north the conqueror Mari, Abla, Ashur, and Nineveh, and even reaching Anatolia and the Mediterranean. At some point, he moved his capital to the previously known city of Akkad, adding the title King of Sumer and Akkad to his previous designation King of Kish. We do not know this person's birth name, but as king he adopted the throne name Sarukin, which in the Eastern Semitic language that came his designation King of Kish. We do not know this person's birth name, but as king he adopted the throne name Sarukin, which in the Eastern Semitic language that came to be known as Akkadian means the true king, indicating that some people doubted his legitimacy. <laughs> In English, he is known as Sargon. Following the conventional biblical spelling, Sargon was the first non-Semitic speaking Mesopotamian ruler to adapt the Sumerian cuneiform script to his own language and he reigned over a vast territory for 56 years. Nimrud's depiction is based on Sargon. Both Nimrud and Sargon began their reigns in Sumer, Shinar, building a card in Babylonian, and continuing north to Assyria. Both were credited with extraordinary prowess. Both were considered to be the first post-Diluvians to wield royal power. Thus Sargon is likely to figure behind Nimrud. Though as we will see, he has been amalgated with his grandson, Naram-Sin. Naram-Sin, Sargon's grandson. Sargon was succeeded by his sons Rimish and Manishtushu, and then by Manishtushu's son, Naram-Sin. Naram-Sin ruled for 36 years. He survived a rebellion led by the city of Kish, and then restored the empire. Naram-Sin, besides appointing himself the new deity of the city of Akkad, resurrected the bureaucracy, economy, and defenses of the kingdom, and was known as a patron of the arts. He was also the first to adopt the title Saru Kibratim Arbaim, king of the four corners of the earth, Naram-Sin was succeeded by his son, Shar Khalishari, and during his reign, the empire fell apart. A few additional Akkadian rulers returned, but they were no longer powerful emperors, and the city of Akkad was eventually abandoned and lost. By the time the Bible was written, the kingdom of Akkad had been gone for more than a millennium. So how did this amalgamated character of Nimrud enter the Bible, Sargon and Naram-Sin, in later Historiography, we know very little about the historical Sargon or Naram-Sin, but to the Mesopotamian literati of the late Babylonian and Neo-Assyrian Babylonian. the of Sargon and Naram-Sin was one of the important stages in human history. According to the Sumerian king list, after the flood, kingship came down from heaven and was granted to the city of Kish. Over a thousand years after the Akkadian Empire collapsed, the Neo-Assyrian kings used Sargon's royal title of Sarkisati, taking it to mean quite literally king of the universe. Most strikingly, Sargon's Neo-Assyrian namesake, Sargon II, had his full title, the great king, the mighty king, king of the universe, king of Assyria, king of Babylon, king of Sumer and Akkad, inscribed on numerous inscriptions all over his royal palaces. In short, to people of the second and first, millennia BCE, the great myths and legends of the past tales of the flood of Atena, the shepherd, the struggle between Aga of Kish and Gilgamesh of Uruk, 
and the ascension of Sargon and Naram Sin were important history. The same was true for the Canaanites and the Israelites living in the 2nd and 1st millennia BCE at the other end of the Fertile Crescent. Sargon in the Levant. Although our knowledge of the West Semitic versions of the primeval history are extremely limited, it is clear from the few sources we do have that Western and Eastern Semitic traditions shared many common elements. The similarity was due initially to the common origin of all Semitic peoples. During later periods, different versions would be occasionally updated through continuous contact between Mesopotamia and the Levant. Petite versions of the Sargon and Naram Sin accounts have been found in Anatolia, increasing Assyrian and Babylonian influence and eventually domination of Syria and Israel during the 9th through 6th centuries would have influenced the written biblical version of the story. The ancient Hebrews, like their Mesopotamian counterparts, probably had their own version of the bringing down of kingship after the flood. At some early age, stories of the great king, Sarukin of Kish, to rule Shinar and Akkad, and even conquered Assyria and her cities, reached the living as proven by the version found at Al Amarna, Egypt. Apparently, time and distance blended the names and deeds of Sargon and his almost as famous grandson Naram Sin, whose name was corrupted in the biblical account from Naram to Nimrud. The author of the Jesos may very well have known a longer epic poem which he condensed. His really tradition made the hero a mighty hunter before Yahweh but retained his rule as the original human monarch. A Neo-Assyrian period updating, the Hebrew Nimru tradition may have indeed been updated by the addition of cities like Kala and Rezin, ruled by the more recent Sargon, the second Assyrian king to take that name. The Assyrian monarch might have even chose this throne name to use a comparison for propaganda purposes. The Nimru tradition is known by the 8th century Judate prophet Mika, who referred to the land of Nimrud when predicting the future destruction of Assyria. Mik 5 ratio 5, who will shepherd Assyrians' land with swords, the land of Nimrud in its gates. Thus he will deliver us from Assyria, should it invade our land and should it trample our country. No other prophet, however, uses this designation. The loss of Nimrud's story. The compilers of the table of nations included Nimrud as one of the typological 70 descendants of Noah. Later Jewish tradition, nothing the fact that Shannar appears both in relation to Nimrud and in the Tower of Babel story makes Nimrud the builder of the tower and understands him as the archetypical evil king. His wickedness was understood to wickedness. in his very name. <laughs> Derived from the verb to rebel instead of a great hunter before Yahweh, he became the ultimate rebel against God. Yahweh. The biblical Nimrud, <laughs> however, is neither a wicked king nor even a character unique a to Israelite historiography. Instead, he is the composite Hebrew equivalent of the Sargonic dynasties, two most famous kings of Kish, Sargon, the first Semitic emperor and his grandson, Naram Sin. The later editors of the book of Genesis dropped much of the story and mistakenly unidentified the Mesopotamian Kish with the Hamitic Kush. The Nimrud tradition was thus lost, save for five verses in Genesis 10. If you enjoy this video and want to see more like it, please consider subscribing to us and hitting the like button. Feel free to write a comment below and suggest which theory you want to see next. If you'd like to further support this channel, please consider joining. Our membership link 
will be found in the description box below. We appreciate your support, and as always, thanks for watching. Right. There's a lot of grass-fed beef sticks on the market, but the ones from okay. Paleo Valley are epic. Why? Yes, grass-fed, but look. Good job. Wicked kings. <clears throat> need to put in some more leather. Keep them nice and warm. Yeah, it's supposed to be a, a colder than normal um, winter. And uh, yeah. what do you guys do uh, to uh, keep warm and keep yourself healthy? Um, yeah, like it's my uh, knees. I had, well, my mom had arthritis, and, and uh, but she was also overweight. She refused to. She refused to look after herself properly, and she started using stupid, weird shit like they give you steroids. It's like what the fuck? She's very sensitive. Here's little Mimi. And, uh, <clears throat> let's see, uh, drink uh, distilled water. I'll tell you some Trista's tips and tricks. Haven't done a Trista's tips and tricks for a little while, but, uh, use a distiller. Never use the shit from the. Never drink the shit. The, God knows what they put in it. Well, we know. Actually, we know. We know what they put into it. They put in fluorides. They put in. Uh, there's mood stabilizers and shit in the water in New York. New York. I was reading about when I was a journalist. So anyway, uh, purified water is a must. And as your press, like, you should see the shit that comes from my distiller. I've been collecting it. It's huge. It's got a huge bag. It's like, what, how many fucking pounds? What was that, like, two pounds? Of fucking shit. The distiller took out of the tap water. Like, really? Come on, man. There's no fucking excuse. No more excuses. I did a search on, uh, one time I did a search on, on fluoride in the water. And yeah, I was seeing like what kind of opposition to that there was. And I literally found, I'm calling this a no more excuses campaign. 
No more excuses from our government. Accepted for for um balancing uh, the fucking balancing the budget bare minimum. So, um, constitutionally, but I would uh, suggest a balanced budget um, amendment or something to the Constitution that, like, Congress must uh, balance budgets every year. And uh, um, fully accountable. Accountable. And accounted no more fucking black budget. No more excuses, no more fucking black budget. More out of control law enforcement. Okay, no more um, jail deaths, for example. And, um, you know, I could go into that, you know, that's a rabbit hole right there. I'm, I'm kind of mapping out, uh, <clears throat> some shows or TikTok ad, my TikTok ad campaign. Uh, if you hear that, let's hear what the, hear what the um, chickens are playing tonight. Go, 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 go. That 